On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, we are going to be talking about the debate around the new arena in the city, but we're going to be talking to a city planning expert with a very simple question. We're not going to be talking about specifics necessarily. The question is this, mall or downtown? Suburbs, although Lime Ridge is not really the suburbs, but out of the downtown or in the downtown, where do you build an arena if you're a city and you're going to build one for the maximum Blast. We'll talk about that. It's a complicated issue. We're also going to be chatting about politics and the nastiness of them. It, it, boy, it seems like our, we're only just getting started into the federal election campaign, and it already seems like we have scraped some barnacles off the bottom of the boat of decorum. How low is it possibly going to go in this election campaign? 85% of Canadians say it's going to be awful. We'll see about that one. And finally, 50 years ago this summer, there was a terrific... Terrifically stupid, but terrific urban legend that said Paul McCartney had died in a car accident and a f- imposter, a replica, was now filling in for him on the Beatles. We're going to talk to Alan Cross, music historian, about the genesis of this story and how it caught so much traction. Well, all that coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, you, I assume, have heard the opening salvos of a fight that is beginning to bubble here in the city of Hamilton. And I'm talking, of course, about the debate that's already starting about a new arena or salvaging First Ontario Centre or doing something. And it's not just a question of, well, it's partially a question of do we do one. But the bigger question that seems to spin off of there is if we do, where do we do it? Do we build it downtown? Do we try and build up the downtown and use this as a as a thing to get that going? Or do we go where the owner of the Bulldogs and the owners of Lime Ridge Mall want it, which is up at Lime Ridge Mall on the mountain? Two vastly differing philosophies, city core, bolster the city core, or solidify the mall on the mountain. Uh, So why is that last one even an issue? Why is solidifying the mall an issue? Well, not all malls, of course, are failing in North America, but many have. Many malls have fallen on hard times, and Lime Ridge Mall right now is Hamilton's number one taxpayer that contributes something in the neighborhood of $11 million a year to city coffers. So what is, on in broad strokes, which is the better move? Uh, Brent Totterin is with Totterin Urban Works in Vancouver. He is a nationally and internationally respected leader with 25 years of expertise in advanced urbanism, city planning, and urban design. He also, as it turns out, happens to be a guy who grew up in the North End and went to Sir John A. Macdonald, so he knows this city well. Uh, Brent, thanks for doing this today. Uh, my pleasure. So I was reading a piece today uh, about you that you've been quoted in, and it was talking about malls and their future, and it was talking about how a lot of malls are now trying to retrofit what, what they are to fix re- residential and office and retail and, res- and all kinds of other uses. And you said this, you said, and this is a quote, just about every shopping center, if they're smart, is looking at this. Why would they be looking at that? Well, the great thing is that in Canada, we don't have that many failed shopping malls compared to the United States, which built a massive amount of too much shopping center shopping malls. And so a lot of them are failing. In Canada, we planned our shopping and our retailing in cities much better, so we don't have them failing. But um, just about every mall I know of is looking for the greater opportunity. It's a large piece of land under single ownership. There's a lot of wasted or inefficient land there in the form of all of that surface parking that's rarely ever full. And it's, it's car dependent. It's only one thing. So you go there to shop and you drive your car usually. So 
shopping centers even before they fail. And, and frankly, many of them will never fail, but they should take the greater opportunity to think about um, a, a different way of building their site, a, a different way of building their city. And what's usually happening is they're going away from this single-use idea, not just shopping, but living. A lot of them are sprouting towers, becoming urban places, for supporting and facilitating the idea of transit, walking and biking instead of just being car dependent. So they're becoming little pieces of city instead of being largely suburb and car dependent suburb at that, uh, which is what they've been up till now. Your expertise is partially in this area. So looking forward, planning for the future, can a mall, even one that may be doing well right now, can a mall that is purely retail based survive the way things are going these days with digital and online shopping? Or is that a dangerous thing to just rely on that alone? Well, the, 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 the mythology that digital shopping is going to wipe out the malls, that's never really transpired, and I don't think it will transpire. But malls uh, can't depend on the uh, support that they've had in the past. So they are diversifying. They're thinking differently. Frankly, there's a lot of relationship between the, the, the physical store that you see in the mall and the online opportunity. People go in and try on things in the mall, and then they shop online. So the, the likelihood that malls will close or, or stores will close, whether they're Main Street stores downtown or what have you, they're not closing. They're changing their relationship with an online presence. But again, the best opportunity for these large single-use sites, and I think the Limewich Mall, I, I think I read it's 80 acres, so, which is a massive uh, amount of land. It's interesting that you cite that it's the largest taxpayer. If you actually compared that to 80 acres of downtown, you'd see much more taxes generated in the downtown. But that stat that it's the largest um, taxpayer is because it's such a massive single landowner. Uh, so it's actually not that efficient a land use. And it's frankly not that efficient a taxpayer because of that inefficiency of land use. So there's a great opportunity to make it more than what it is right now. And could an arena, and not necessarily in this case, broadly, could an arena, if you put an arena on that land, could that be one of the things that might do that? Well, if you were just asking me, uh, is it a creative idea to think about instead of having some other new anchor? And all malls are looking at new anchors because we don't have department stores like Sears anymore. But, the, but they're rethinking that whole nature of the anchor. If you ask me, could that be an uh, arena entertainment facility? I would say if, just to that question, yes, that could be an interesting, innovative kind of an idea. But there's a much bigger issue at play in Hamilton and in many cities, which is that cities like Hamilton desperately need that kind of catalyst, that kind of entertainment facility in their downtown as part of the larger revitalization strategy for the downtown. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about the debate around a new arena that's been going on for the past few days and seems to be picking up both speed and strong feelings on each side of the aisle. Uh, talking with Brent Totteron, who is a Hamilton guy who now lives out in Vancouver. He works in urban planning and looking forward and thoughts around how to build a city. And just before the break, I had cut Brent off because he had just said about how Yeah, the mall could be a good idea, but there is also the issue of a downtown. Brent, I'll let you pick up from there. Well, sure. There's not that many um, big things that happen in cities that that have the potential to be the catalyst, a catalyst for a stronger, healthier, more successful downtown. With all the benefits that come with that, including massive tax generation uh, benefits. So it's, I think it's, 
Um, not surprising at all and quite appropriate that the city has said we're looking for sites around the downtown area. So it's a big deal to to add to the mix a potential suburban site. That debate has happened in other cities. Uh, Calgary just went through a few years of really nasty debate about a suburban site versus a, an inner city site. And thankfully, I think the inner city site has prevailed. Uh, Edmonton went through that debate and built a downtown um, uh, arena Cities in Ontario like London, smaller cities like Guelph and Kingston, even Ottawa, when it originally built the the arena way out in the middle of the agricultural area, finally is rethinking that. So uh, a lot of cities have gone through this debate. It is definitely best practice to put it in a place where there's public transit and other ways of getting around. You don't make it car dependent because arenas are massive generators of traffic, particularly surge traffic at certain times which can cause some real issues. And it's, it's a re, it would be a real lost opportunity in terms of creating that synergy, that catalyst, the economic, the taxation, the sustainability, the transport, the city building catalyst that these kinds of arenas and entertainment facilities can be within a downtown that is struggling. And we all know that downtown Hamilton is badly in need of these kinds of catalysts. So the question I have whenever I hear that is, I understand the theory behind that for certain, but Hamilton, 35 or so years ago, built a an arena downtown First Ontario Centre that we're talking about now, and it has done seemingly absolutely nothing to be a catalyst towards redevelopment or spin-offs or restaurants or bars or anything in the downtown. In fact, you would very easily argue that the area right around that arena is in vastly worse shape than it was when that thing was built 35 years ago. So why has that not worked and why would it suddenly work now? Well, there's certainly a scale to the arena, uh, a, a, a question about the nature of the arena, not as an arena, but as a full-service, diverse entertainment facility, how you design it to strengthen the street and the block and the area around it so that it doesn't look inward, but rather spreads its benefit, its energy outward, and, and rejuvenates the whole area. So trust me, there's lots of ways to do a downtown arena wrong, and boy, we have examples of that. <laughs> but, uh, but if you do it right, it's, it's unquestioned that it can be the powerful catalyst that we're talking about. That doesn't mean there aren't questions and discussions about how big, how it's designed, who's going to be in it, both initially the Bulldogs and maybe, or let's say definitely, uh, an NHL franchise in the future. So uh, all of these are important questions, but I, I, and I don't have your answer. I, I may be from Hamilton, but I don't live there now. Does it have to what come I, though, Brent? Does it have to be part of a bigger, because they're talking also about a convention center and other things. Does it have to be right. part of a huge entertainment precinct as opposed to standing by itself for it to have a chance? Well, there, there, certainly there is a, a, thought, uh, a strategy that says clustering these kind of things, the convention center, the uh, performance facility, uh, as has been the case in the past, can be a good thing. You can create a kind of a precinct. I um, don't say that that's a, an absolute truth. You can and sometimes should look for opportunities in many cities to spread these around the downtown, to spread the catalyst. On the other hand, you want them to be... It, listen, if you don't have a lot of hotel space in your downtown, if you don't have a lot of street restaurants and such that can be part of that spinoff, Clustering can be an important thing, and I think that's been one of the considerations that they've had in Hamilton. I guess my point is there isn't an absolute truth. Even though I say that the thinking that they have right now is a best practice thinking to put this downtown, 
you, there's no absolute truth to anything. So you have to look at the circumstances locally, carefully. You have to figure out what works best for that city in the moment that it's in. But I will say this. I worked on downtown revitalization in Hamilton back in the 90s when I was in my 20s. This has been a long-standing effort with a lot of energy and creativity put into it to keep the downtown moving in a positive way. And it actually is moving in a positive way. Things are getting better. I've seen the stats. I've seen the information. So it's, this is a very careful decision for the future of your, not just your downtown, but your city. Because a city is only as successful as its downtown. I've seen that in cities all across Canada, all across North America, all across the world. Brent Totterin, uh, you can look up his website, Totterin Urban Works, T-O-D-E-R-I-A-N, not exactly as it sounds, Totterin Urban Works. Uh, listen, really appreciate you taking some time to do this today. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Gad. Glad to help. It's, uh, look, the debate is going to be going on. Right there, you have both sides. He, clearly, he would favor the downtown idea, but can make a case for the mall. You've got both sides right there. We'll continue talking about it. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> Sadly, it's not going anywhere. Very sadly, this will be going on for a long time, is my prediction. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last October, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about the upcoming federal election. In an interview, in an interview he said, this, by the way, this is the election coming up in a month and a half from now, this October. He said, this election is going to be nasty. This is going to be, this is his words again, the nastiest campaign ever. And a Nanos poll that was done asked a bunch of Canadians the same question. Uh, they agreed with the Prime Minister. They said 85% of them said they expect this campaign to be way nastier than what we've seen in the past. But, but, to clarify, that day when he was asked that question, the Prime Minister said, it's going to be horrendous, but it will not be us. It won't be the Liberals. It won't be me who's slinging mud. Here's this quote, politics of division, of scare tactics, that kind of approach that Stephen Harper tried does not work. That was his quote. Well, since then, we've seen like 15-year-old video of Andrew Scheer in the House of Commons brought up. Uh, we've heard claims that he is going to change the abortion laws and do all kinds of things. Uh, we've seen Elizabeth May talking about how the governments have led us down the path to a climate emergency and how they're all basically almost response, criminally responsible for this, on and on. Whatever happened to the sunny ways? Whatever happened to no mud? Whatever happened to this is not us who's going to get involved with this? And the real question is, if this is what we're seeing now, a month and a half out, uh, what do we expect when we get closer to the election? Stephen LeDrew is a lawyer. He's a commentator. You can read him in the National Post. He is also the former Liberal, ca- uh, Liberal Party president. He joins us now. Stephen, thanks for doing this today. Scott, good to chat with you. So are sunny ways officially dead now? They were never officially alive, in my view. Trudeau has always been somebody, even when he was the leader of the third party before he became prime minister, because the Liberal Party at that time was the third party in the, in the House, as you know. He would say one thing and do another. He always has done that. He has a history of that. So, and in your very good intro, when he said, you're quoting him as saying, this is going to be the nastiest, the day after that, I recall, he was in the House of Commons calling uh, the Conservatives a bunch of ambulance chasers. And somebody in the press said, wait a second, wait a second. Did you just say yesterday that there was going to be no name calling in this by you? He said, well, this was an exception. <laughs> well, I, I also am struggling to understand, and it's not just the Prime Minister, to be fair. I mean, they no. listen, they all do it, but... 
do politicians not understand that when you say the election is going to be nasty, but not by us. We're not going to be nasty like them, the nasty ones with dangerous secret agendas. By definition, that's being nasty. You're absolutely right. And I think that politics in Canada, you're right, it's, it's getting nasty. Trudeau takes the lead on it. But you're right, the other, the other uh, leaders are, are getting in there in the fray. Um, I think part of it as well, though, is that it counts for so much. I mean, we are in, going into an era. I was just reading today a report out of Alberta. There's a group there, and they actually have a map of the new Canada they want, which is, you know, Western Canada minus Vancouver. And uh, they talk about the population and the, and the tax base it's going to have. There are a lot of separatists. We have huge forces at play in, uh, in this country, and it's, um, this election counts for a lot, which is why I think that all politicians are, are really duking it out. That's not the thing to do. That's not the right approach to it. But I think that's what is becoming second nature in Canadian politics, that it's, uh, it's deadly, it's wicked, it is, uh, it is nasty. And the other thing that happens in this, Trudeau always wanted to bring you know, a younger generation into politics. Well, he did. And they turned and, and, and uh, broke many of his promises. And I think people of all ages, actually, I just say young people, but people of all ages hear politicians scream and shout like that. And they just say, oh, gosh. Let's just go back to the radio show and not listen to the politicians. Well, it, it, I mean, it just seems, and again, I'm, I'm across the board here. It seems that every politician's go-to move here, despite the fact that they say we are not going to be slinging mud, the go-to move is always to point out how terrifying the opposition or the other party is or the other leader is rather than highlighting their own strength. We ne- I'm trying to think of the times, and maybe they pop up occasionally, but they don't last very long, when someone simply talks about their own plan rather than comparing it to the horror show that comes from the other guy or the other yeah, woman. But Scott, I mean, you go back in history, and it wasn't as, as personally nasty Perhaps. That's maybe the difference. As it is now, yeah. But I, you know, you go back into our history books, and when Diefenbaker was prime minister in the late 50s, early 60s, and then there was little Lester Pearson, I mean, some of those, the quotes I have read just, you know, <laughs> just scream out and say, whoa, there was nothing different then. But it was, you know, more, it's more personal now than it was, well, you know, vote for those darn liberals and they're going to cause the economy to collapse, their policies. So their politicians are always on the attack as opposed to saying, vote for us and we're going to do this. I mean, I think we need more of the retail politics, which I describe as, if you vote for, for me, I, and I get in, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and I promise I'm going to do it. Now that's, you know, it's, and, like, it's like buying a car. You and, know? and you've been in politics. You were the, as I say, Liberal Party president. You understand yep. politics has never been genteel. It has always been a blood sport. But the difference, and you just, you brought it up and you nailed it, I think. And that is, you used to fight against the other party's ideas. And you may have fought vigorously against the other party's ideas. But it seems now that it's become so much more personal that if you are going to get into politics now, you essentially have to be prepared to be destroyed or have someone else try to destroy you. I think, yes, and another example of that is, and you say I was, I was Liberal Party president, yes, but that, when, that was when the Liberal Party, in my view, was a party, and it, it represented all factions and all parts of Canada, and there were lots of 
you know, MPs and wannabe MPs and people involved who just wanted to do a good thing. And, and in fairness, the Conservative Party had people like that, too. Now, the Liberal Party that Mr. Trudeau leads is really the Trudeau Party. It's, it's, he is the personality. He is a celebrity. He is the guy who flies around the world and uh, promotes himself. And uh, there's, a, there's a fascinating, and I'm sure you've seen it, Scott, it's all, it's all over the, uh, the Internet now, interview that... Uh, on Netflix. Yeah, an American uh, comedian had with Trudeau. I mean, I have no idea what he was thinking about when he accepted it, because you had to have known what this comedian was going to do. He skewers him, absolutely skewers him. And Trudeau is just sitting there real quiet sometimes. He can't believe it. Um, why would you do that? Well... Because you have a big ego. You want to get your face out there on American TV. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I've been somewhat disgusted as the election has launched somewhat, sort of got off the ground, but it's been so far, pretty much as we would have predicted, just nastiness. And that's what the politicians keep telling us they're not going to do, and it becomes the default position Talking with Stephen LeDrew, who's a lawyer, a commentator, former Liberal Party president. And uh, Stephen, I, I really believe, and I got to give him credit, I think Justin Trudeau was on to something last time in the last election when he said people want to do less destructive politics and want to have less of this kind of stuff. And I think in many ways, last time he tried to do that to some degree. But what does it say about the philosophy that we're talking about or politics itself that one term into his camp into his turn one term into his leadership they are now moving away from this as are the other parties what does it say about the possibilities that there ever could be positive politics well i think it's also about scott a sign of the times and you know we are living in nasty times not just with uh, politics but with all you know, a lot of public commentary um and it's not just canada for that either it's the states absolutely you, know, you, have, you know the president say you know lock her up lock her up and you know send them back i mean it's a we are in a how do you describe it? We are in a, you know, it's, it's a very base, you know, course. Yeah, very, class, just very angry, base. very angry all the time That's about right. everything. And, and part of that as well is that because uh, politicians can't do what they used to do. In other words, in the 50s and 60s and 70s even, there were a lot of big projects that governments could do. And we had good bureaucrats and we had good, and, and we had, there was lots of money. And, um, and lots of projects. And now you look at uh, politics at all levels, and it's just more difficult to do things. I know it's more difficult to build public transit in Canada. I think you know, we're tying ourselves up in knots, but I mean, to try to build um, you know, bridges or subways, it takes ages and ages and ages to try to create a new uh, curriculum, for instance, of education. And why is that? Is it simply because... If you are in politics, you must disagree with the position of the other party, even if it's a good idea? I think you're right on that, Scott, but it's too bad. And, and again, I don't want to sound you know, that, that old, but I read a lot of history books, and, and a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will, will remember Bill Davis when he was Premier of Ontario. I mean, he was a gentleman, and, um, and he was... Yes, I mean, he knew how to uh, stick in the knife now and then. But, I mean, he was, he was truly a gentleman. And we, we've had lots of politicians of both sexes who are, who are polite 
and who uh, put forward good ideas. And also part of it is just, I think, you know, there's an ebb and flow to politics in the public life. And we are clearly in the bottom of the trough right now. <laughs> well, and, and the big problem with this, Stephen, and the, the thing about this that discourages me, and I think probably discourages other people, is that whoever wins, I, I happen to think that Trudeau is going to win the next election again. That's uh, You can disagree, you can agree, doesn't really, but everyone listening can have their thought on that. But regardless, whoever wins... The way politics goes now, whoever ends up winning and taking office, they come into office with half the country already soured against them. So you're already, you're not fighting to get something done together. You've already got a war mentality going and half of the country, whoever you are who wins, hates you already. That's a hard way to try and govern a country. It is, but I like the, the there's an American example, which I just think it's just it's so terrific. And it was the late President Bush and he had been defeated by that upstart, <laughs> Clinton. And when he left the Oval Office, he had a handwritten letter in an envelope on the desk for president, the incoming president to, uh, to look at. And he said, congratulations and all kinds of nice things. And he said, you are my president too. In other words, once you win office, you are the president of every American. You are the prime minister of every Canadian. And I think there should be a respect for that. That there should be, um, you know, so put down, put down your, your weapons. And let's just try to, the, we've had the election, it's over, I hope on October 22nd, that whoever loses will say the same thing. That but but Stephen, that's, op- that's, that's, that's great, and it's wildly optimistic, but go on Twitter and you can find hashtag NotMyPresident everywhere, and you see it with not my prime minister, and you will see it if 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 Sheer were to win, you'll see it. If it, it's, it, I wish that was true, but I don't think we live in that time anymore when people will do what Bush said to do and say, "You're my president, or you're my prime minister." And Scott, I think you 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 hit it when you said anymore. Now I I think we're in a very low period in public discourse and in, in in public life and you know just not even just media or politics. You know I mean you just the manners of people on buses. The manners of drivers, you know, on the, on the highway. Anybody's on the highway lot just knows that drivers sometimes today are just crazy. Come on, really? <laughs> no, drivers aren't ever nasty, are they? <laughs> but, you know, I've never experienced that. There's no, man, there's no manners anymore. Now, maybe uh, I used to use the word that used it, anymore. Now, hopefully it's going to come back. In another in another cycle, if you will, we'll be we'll both be dead when that happens. I hate to say it. <laughs> I I hope not, Scott. I hope that you know people get really sick of nasty politics, get really sick of the Twitterverse. Um, you know as well as I do, as I won't name their names, but you know people in the media who have who have quit Twitter. I was speaking to one just a few days ago, and she quit Twitter. She said, I just got tired of being the subject of all the nasty comments yep. people no, I hear you. around. We got to run. I hear you. It's, it's absolutely true. It and is absolutely of, true. That is the new media, which is why radio is so valuable. Amen to that. Stephen LaDrew, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Good chatting, Scott. See you later. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, it dawned on me... Well, today, as I was thinking about this, but I went, I started thinking about it. There was a lot, there was an awful lot going on musically in the summer of 1969, 50 years ago this summer. It was a few weeks ago on this show that we were chatting about Woodstock. The Woodstock Festival was 50 years ago this summer. 
Brian Jones, the Rolling Stones, died in 1969, 50 years ago this summer. The Who released the rock opera Tommy 50 years ago this summer. And 50 years ago this summer, a very weird conspiracy theory slash hoax slash urban legend became a thing in the music world. One of the oddest stories, I would suggest, in music history. Uh, it's not odd that it got started, I suppose. It is, there's lots of strange stories that get told in any kind of line of work. It's odd that it got such legs and created a firestorm that some I've learned as of even today, they still believe it, some do, uh, were willing to buy into. And that would be the death of Paul McCartney. The death of Paul McCartney. Most of us have heard about this, but it's such a terrific story that I wanted Alan Cross to join us. He is, if you want to know anything about the history of music, Alan Cross is the guy. And he's written about it on his blog today, which got me thinking about this. Uh, he joins us now. He's the guy behind Ongoing History of New Music, by the way, and a journal of musical things, which is the blog where this was. Alan Cross. Alan, how are you tonight? I'm good. I have seen Paul McCartney live. I have heard Paul McCartney sing live. I believe the person I saw and heard was the Paul McCartney. So take us back. How do we get to the point where there are people, and I say, including up until today, who believe that Paul McCartney is in fact dead and this is an imposter? Yeah, this goes back to 1967 with the release of the Sgt. Pepper album, and specifically the song A Day in a Life where uh, John Lennon talks about how somebody blew his mind out in a car because he didn't notice that the lights had changed. And this got people all freaked out because, you know, who was he actually talking about? It turns out he was talking about um, um, a son of a political friend in, in the U.K., but everybody thought it might be Paul. And they started looking for all kinds of clues that the Beatles had planted, either in song lyrics, on album covers, in photographs, that would demonstrate that, yes, yes, we know Paul is dead, and, and we're only letting the you know, people who are curious enough, who are brilliant enough to, to find out the truth. So we look at, for example, the Sgt. Pepper album cover, which if you look at the back, all the Beatles are facing forward, one Beatle is facing back. Ah, back. aha! Proof! Uh, guess, who, guess who it is. Yeah. And then there's this whole thing about uh, the, the patch that Paul McCartney is wearing on his uniform, and it says OPD, which, of course, has to stand for officially pronounced dead. I thought it was OPP. It was, but, of course, this is how things get. Okay. He, back in 1964, they were going through uh, Malton Airport in Toronto. Uh, a member of the force actually gave all the members of the band OPP patches. They threw them in a, in a, in a box of stuff that they took back to England with them, and when they made the Sgt. Pepper uniforms using a theatrical agency in um, a theatrical costume agency in London. They brought the box of crap that they got from all these people. Somebody picked out the OPP patch and sewed it on Paul's uniform. So uh, that was that. Then, of course, the, the, if you listen to the, to the words in, in, uh, uh, throughout the other parts of uh, Sergeant Pepper, you know, we talk about Billy Shears in, with a little help from my friends. Um, so the thing is that Paul is killed in a car accident in 1966. He's replaced by a imposter whose real name is Billy Shears, and this hoax or this this um, uh, is per perpetrated on the public from there on in. Of course, it, it's not true. Of course, it, but what happened that there was a student newspaper in 1969 that 
tried to connect all these different dots using Sgt. Pepper, the White Album, Magical Mystery Tour, and whatever else. Tried to connect these dots saying that Paul was, in fact, dead. And then there was a DJ in Detroit named Russ Gibb who also picked up on this and started perpetuating this idea that Paul had, in fact, died. And uh, it, it just kind of it, 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 it hung on. Uh, oh, until we get to the Abbey Road album, which again came out in 1969. Of course, if you look at the cover of Abbey Road, you have the four Beatles. You have, uh, and Paul is the only one that's barefoot. He's the only one that's out of step with the rest of the Beatles. You look at how everybody has dressed. You know, one's a, an Undertaker. One's, uh, I guess, George the Undertaker. George, um, um, I guess it's uh, John is the preacher. Ringo's the Undertaker. Paul is the dead guy with the feet because an Indian. Uh, mythology, the person with bare feet meets, he's dead. You know, all these crazy things. And that's the one, that's the, the hint that I guess really is, the, uh, most people are familiar with that one above all the other ones. Yeah, and if you look, there was a uh, Volkswagen parked on the side of the road on the front cover of Abbey Road, and part of the license plate read 28IF. In other words, Paul would have been 28 if he had lived, which was incorrect <laughs> because that didn't match up with his, his actual age. But there's all kinds of stuff like that. I had a guy in high school who was absolutely obsessed with this. And any time you tried to point out any of the flaws in his theory, he would just go ballistic and start you know, spouting stuff back at you. This is almost uh, as complicated as trying to interpret the American pie meaning for people. Yeah, it, it is. And what's, what's interesting is that this all happened in the era before the Internet, before social media, before websites, before any of the things that we know today spread conspiracy theories. Uh, it was through print, it was through radio, and it was through word of mouth that this whole thing spread. And uh, after a while, a lot of people just piled on and started, you know, for example, publishing various pictures of Paul showing that, ooh, okay, on this, take a look at these two different pictures of Paul. Notice where his ears are on this photo, and notice that his ears are <laughs> lower on that photo. Therefore, these are two different people. And as much as you're saying, and you're right, that of course the internet was not around then, which you, then it would make it more difficult to uh, create the volume of stuff to build a great conspiracy theory. The flip side is, if you start to hear people talk about this, you can't go and check against this very easily, so you just take people's word. You can't disprove the conspiracy theory either. Well, one of the things we have to realize is that there was, yes, there was no place to actually research the truth. Because if the radio said it, or if it was in the paper, well, then it had to be true, right? And uh, you would take their, their word as gospel. At the same time, to those, we didn't have any other place to find facts. And it was, it was very, it, music was so mysterious back then because our heroes almost never appeared on TV. We only saw static pictures of them in newspapers and magazines. We only saw what we wanted to see with the, uh, with the uh, album covers and the lyrics and the liner notes. So it was one big mystery open to all kinds of interpretation from all kinds of angles. And who's to say that your interpretation was wrong, given the absence of facts? Your comment about how in those days, uh, the people who were on the radio, it was the gospel truth and no one could disbelieve it. We long, Alan, for those days again, when people listen to those of us on the radio and believe wholeheartedly everything we say on questioning. 
Yes, and I'm hoping that people are actually <laughs> believing what, what we're saying right now because we are telling the truth. But the funny part about this, and I, I listened to, because you have some links on your on your blog today to the, I guess, I don't know if it was the initial, but I think it's the initial, this Russ Gibb, the, the DJ from Detroit, who sort of got this thing, gave it some fire, gave it the kindling or whatever you want to say. And my understanding is this is a guy who was a dead man standing as far as on the radio. He had already been fired and had like two weeks before he was going to be off the air. So it was a, I'm going out with a blaze of glory kind of thing. I, I, I even wondered as I was listening to him, if he truly believed this, or if this was just the way, Hey, they're going to remember Russ Gibb when I'm gone. It's possible. Uh, listen, if I had an opportunity to make a name for myself using the Beatles, the biggest band at the time, I was absolutely going to use it. And uh, Russ, by the way, died earlier this year. He was uh, 87 years old, and I think he went to his death completely unrepentant for anything that he may have done or said. Sorry, completely which? Uh, unrepentant. For oh, unrepentant. Okay, so... Well, again, I mean, look, uh, Orson Welles didn't apologize for War of the Worlds. I mean, it's no, not exactly no. the same thing, but you had that power once upon a time on this yeah, medium. Again, really, really cool. This is the power of, of the media back then uh, with, 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 again, no opportunity to rebut it. You could fight with your friends over a beer or in the dorm or wherever it was, but ultimately the major media people were the ones who had the final word. And after a while, it got kind of fun, because then you could go and search for all these clues and add to the story. So after a while, it became, um, you know, much like we have today, where, you know, try to prove me wrong. I, I don't care if you, I've, I've, you've seen him in person. I don't care. Look at all the inf- uh, evidence to the contrary. People were looking for something just to, you know, make a big deal out of it. Paul McCartney must have spoken about this over the years. I don't remember ever hearing an interview, but what has he ever said about this? Oh, he's joked about it. He's been a little bit more uh, easygoing about it than, say, Buzz Aldrin has about the fake Paula Boone landing. Right, yeah. <laughs> Where he'll actually turn around and slug a guy in the face. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, Paul's, Paul said some, some, you know, witty Paul things about this, this thing. It just does seem like it is, it's hard to imagine, again, 50 years ago, and again, different world, different time, but, and you're absolutely right that we didn't see as much of, of these guys. We don't, you know, live videos or live pictures, but Paul McCartney did do interviews and there were other interviewers and, and it just seems to me un, sort of farcical or fascinating that people were willing to believe this when they could hear his voice and see TV clips of him and hear other interviews saying, yeah, that's Paul McCartney, all right. Yeah, I know. It's just goofy that what people wanted to believe. But again, the Beatles were the biggest band in the world. They were offering things like the cover for Sgt. Pepper, which was the most ornate album cover art ever done. You could spend hours looking at the front cover of that and realize, oh, there's two sets of Beatles there. One set of Beatles look really, really sad, and they seem to be looking down on what appears to be a grave. And who are all these other people? Are these people attending a funeral? What's what's all this about? So you could, you know, go down all kinds of different rabbit holes, like we said with the costumes. And, the yep. people. and there was a, on, on that grave, there is, there are flowers in the shape of a left-handed Hofner base as well. So, you yeah, know, you, it's gotta be Paul, right? It, it has to be Paul. D- did this, do you think the Beatles at the time, and we don't really know, but did they do anything as far as we know to really dispel this or was this just, Hey, this is just more albums we're selling because people want to buy Sergeant Pepper to take a look at all these clues. I have never heard, other than them rebutting it in the occasional interview, 
that uh, this was was all just a hoax. Um, I don't think they ever actually, and I could be if somebody knows, please tell me. I can't. I don't remember anybody ever actually saying, um, uh, you know, the Beatles actually mounting in some sort of a, a campaign to, to set the record straight. I just don't remember. Maybe they didn't. And, you know, I don't know if I would. It was just an opportunity to um, you know, just add to the legend, fuel the fire. Hey, if I was like in sync or one of those boy bands today, I would start spreading a rumor that one of my members had died and an exact replica was back. I mean, why not? If it helps you stay in the news, keep it in the news. Oh, absolutely. And every once in a while, something like this comes along here. The, you know, I guess this was the first great artist death hoax. And now they come almost daily, especially through Twitter. So it was, uh, they were ahead of their time, like they were with everything else. Elvis is, Elvis's death is a hoax too, correct? He is still alive and... He's in Kalamazoo, Michigan, pumping gas. I, thank you for clarifying that. I, you know, it, Alan Cross says it's true. I know it to be true. Uh, Alan, listen. Morrison is also alive. Uh, Mojo Rising. Uh, all these guys. All these guys. Janis Joplin is somewhere. We don't know where, but she's somewhere. We don't know where. She's, she's probably around. Kurt Cobain is, is uh, in South America someplace. And uh, I'm sure Bowie is, is doing fine somewhere in South France. <laughs> Alan Cross, we always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. You bet. Uh, go read his piece, by the way. It's at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's a great thing. There's lots of links there to those radio spots that that guy, Russ Gibb, did that got this thing going. But he, Alan was talking about some of the things, and this is the part that makes this fascinating, is the the craziness of this story. I don't think we can really grasp it now. If you're old enough to have remembered this, you may get it. But it's just it's bonkers to think that, you know, like the walrus. I am the walrus. Well, first of all, walrus apparently is symbol of a symbol of death in some Indian culture. I, I don't know if I'm wrong. I'm wrong, but I read that today. But it was John Lennon who sang I am the walrus. But, you know, okay, so we'll fit that one in. Um, there is on the back of Abbey Road, if you look there, it's a picture of a wall with the signs that says Beatles Street, I believe, or something Beatles. Uh, the sign is broken. It's got a crack in it. Well, that's indicative to some people of this. Uh, there's a girl on the liner notes in a blue dress who you just see her arm. That is apparently the, the belief that was held was that was the girl who was, uh, by the way, her name was Rita, like in lovely Rita meter maid, uh, who was in the car running away when Paul McCartney crashed and died. It's all backward lyrics, lyrics that sound different. You can hear things when they, when you speed them up. It's, it is, it is a very complex, very creative hoax slash urban legend. This whole thing about Paul McCartney dying. I, some people listening are unfamiliar with this whole thing. It is well worth taking a look at because it is highly entertaining, especially for those of us who were down at First Ontario Centre three summers ago, watching Paul McCartney sing. If that was not Paul McCartney, if that was in fact Billy Shear, an exact replica who looked and sounded exactly like him, well, kudos to Billy Shear because you pulled it off. You convinced me and everyone else who was in that place that night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it.
Thanks for listening.